back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In the most recent episodes, we looked at the logical ends government tends to lead one to. We saw where government logically leads Christians, both in theory and in practice, and we just saw real-world examples of where governments lead nations into atrocity, exploitation, and violence. In this episode, I want to draw out some final observations about the logic behind government. I want to really evaluate the logical consistency of some of our notions about government. This episode will by no means explore every issue, but hopefully if you couple this with everything else we've discussed so far, it will help you to see that this intuition we have about government being this wonderful, preserving factor is something which really isn't either the case in theory or in practice. You know, conservatives all the time point to all the countries that have had Marxism at its core becoming corrupt and violent and using these anecdotes to dismiss Marxism. Well, find me a significant number of nations where governments haven't led to atrocities, then you conservatives can justify government to me. Let's be fair with our evidentiary methodology. And I just don't think you're going to find many, if any, governments that don't lead to significant atrocities. And if you do find isolated instances of governments not doing horrendous things, it'll probably be countries like Andorra and Luxembourg. Now, I don't know the histories of Andorra or Luxembourg, so they might have a terrible past, but I can imagine countries like those being maybe exempt or uh, you know lesser evils here because I would think that they're extremely homogenous and because I'd imagine they have relatively little power to do much damage due to their size. I can imagine that maybe they have a relatively clean past. Of course, one might respond that there is less atrocity with government than there would be without it, and I just don't know how to show that without anyone having ever tried it to my knowledge. Anyway, let's go ahead and and look at the illogic of government in this episode. Just remember that my goal isn't to go deep on all of these, but rather to give you morsels to chew on and to explore deeper for yourself. All right, number one, where do governments get their authority? Of course, the Christian response based on Romans 13 is that governments get their authority from God. However, I have yet to hear anyone flesh this out consistently or flesh this out from a point of origin. So let's address both of these things here. First, let's talk about governmental authority from the perspective of origination. I referenced a pamphlet, A Solemn Review on the Custom of War, in our episode dealing with the state. But I think it's so good, I'm going to reference it here again. In that pamphlet, which is primarily about war and nonviolence, the author has a short section detailing a problem of primacy. See, Augustine and others are okay with war, in large part because they believe governments have the God-ordained and approved authority to go to war and to do violence. So authority is a really big deal. It's foundational. However, in this short little pamphlet, the author asks a very important question. Where does the origin of this authority come from? Now that might be hard for many today to understand, especially those in the developed West. For those of us in the United States, Joe Biden got the authority from a majority of the people, and it was passed on to him by President Trump, who received his authority from President Obama, etc. We have to go back several hundred years before we run into a problem. Where did George Washington get his authority? For the United States, we have an origin dilemma around 1776 and explaining how us wresting power from the government God granted to us at that time 
um, is is legitimate. But even if we can throw out Romans 13 for a few years and conveniently explain 1776 away, we can take the origin question back almost ad infinitum until we get to the first government. Where did the first government get their authority? Listen to how Noah Worcester sets up the problem in this pamphlet. Quote, That we may obtain a still clearer view of the delusions of war, let us look back to the origin of society. Suppose a family, like that of Noah, to commence the settlement of a country. They multiply into a number of distinct families. Then, in the course of years, they become so numerous as to form distinct governments. In any stage of their progress, unfortunate disputes might arise by the imprudence, the avarice, or the ambition of individuals. Now, at what period would it be proper to introduce the custom of deciding controversies by the edge of the sword, or an appeal to arms? Might this be done when the families had increased to ten? Who would not be shocked at the madness of introducing such a custom under such circumstances? Might it with more propriety be done when the families had multiplied to fifty, a hundred, a thousand, or ten thousand? As the number becomes greater, so do, do the danger, the carnage, and the calamity. Besides, what reason can be given as to why this mode of deciding controversies would not be as proper when there were but ten families as when there were ten thousand? And why might not two individuals thus decide disputes as well as two nations? Perhaps all will admit that the custom could not be honorably introduced until they separated and formed two or more distinct governments. But would this change of circumstances dissolve their ties as brethren and their obligations as accountable beings? Would the organization of distinct governments confer the right on rulers to appeal to arms for the settlement of controversies? Isn't it manifest that no period can be assigned at which the introduction of such a custom would not be absolute murder? And shall a custom, which must have been murderous at its commencement, now be upheld as necessary and honorable? End quote. So where did the government get its authority in the first place? We don't see God hand any government his authority. In fact, the closest we come is in 1 Samuel 8 when Israel wants a king. God permits them to have a king, but he declares that this is a usurpation of his kingship and that there will be hell to pay for establishing a human king. And of course, history bears that out. But even going to 1776 for us in the United States, if one would want to say that the people rose up and agreed to establish authority, this is a tyrannical view of things. It may be a tyranny of the majority, but it's still a tyranny. There were many loyalists, dissenters, and non-resisters, like the Quakers who didn't contribute to the War of Rebellion, who were punished, tortured, killed, or exiled for non-participation or for providing resources to their rightful rulers, the British. A government by the people is never a government by all people, and should more accurately be called a government by some people over other people, or a government by most powerful group of people over the less powerful. So this idea of governments receiving authority from God as we understand it makes absolutely no sense in terms of origin. But neither does it make sense in terms of moral consistency. The Bible is clear that God judges nations for evil acts, and God does not approve of their evil. What then do we do with nations like North Korea or dictators who commit genocide? Is the dictator who grabs power out of the hands of his predecessor now the recipient of God's authority simply because he grabbed the power? If not, why not? Isn't the United States God-granted authority? 
Didn't we grab power from a different authority? Isn't any democracy one group establishing power over another and in spite of the other? Any rationale we have for what constitutes a legitimate government and legitimate governmental transfer ignores the context and time period in which Romans and Peter were written and the fact that many to whom the authors were asking submission were conquered subjects whose governments were overthrown by brute force, by tyrants, and whose subjects were forced into subjugation against their will. Viewing governments as God-ordained authority in the sense that God desires them is problematic, to say the least. Does God really desire institutions which seek to usurp his role as king and who lord power over others through violence? Did God really establish North Korea to bear the sword against evildoers? How are they doing with that? No, I think the way we've laid out Romans 13 makes much more sense, not only in light of the whole section and the whole book, but in light of the rest of the Bible as well as common sense. I mean, we see this very clearly in Isaiah 10, which is something that I've, I've referenced over and over again because I think it's so good. Just as God allowed Assyria to attack Israel for the purpose of his judgment against Israel, so God ordains governments today to bear the sword against evil. But Assyria did many horrible things as well, and their intentions were not God's intentions. So in the same breath that God declares Assyria an instrument of his judgment, he also declares that Assyria will be judged for the very act God allows them to be used for, along with the many other atrocities that they commit. Yes, God has ordained history, but ordination and allowance are very different than desire and active decree. Now, we Reformed, which is probably not where most of you are, but me, in the Reformed camp, I have a great framework for this because I believe that a sovereign God has ordained all things Yet, we Reformed don't think that he's responsible for evil because we understand the difference between proximate and efficient causes. Since you might not be familiar with that, I will definitely put a link in the show notes about proximate and efficient causes. But anyway, I would see Romans 13 as mirroring this distinction between proximate and efficient causes, right? God's permission and allowance versus God's decree and uh, approval or upholding of. But enough of that. I've already done an episode on Romans 13. You can go check that out and um, listen to all of our other episodes as well. This is an episode to lay out problems, not to necessarily answer them. So, first problem, I mean, that's where we spend most of our time because it is a huge, huge, huge foundational problem and one that I just don't foresee us answering. Check out uh, Noah Worcester's uh, um book, pamphlet, whatever you want to call it, and his quote. It's so good, and um, it, it really just whittles the problem down to, uh, to basics. And even though he talks about it in terms of violence, what you need to understand is that um, because a lot of conservative Christian, or Christians in general believe that violence is, um, is given authority based on government, that Noah's, uh, Noah Worcester's uh, argument essentially boils down to governmental authority and um, God's approval of it. All right, so the first problem with government is that there is no explanation for where they get their authority, as we've seen. The Sunday school answer of God doesn't work. And really, that's going to be the foundational problem, like I said. I mean, if a nation has authority, then a lot of other things are just going to fall into place because, well, I guess they're authority, so we just submit. But if authority is murky, everything else is going to fall apart. Since I spent so much time on authority then, I, I'm pretty much just going to mention some of these other problems 
that we're going to get to without a ton of elaboration. You can dig into them further on your own. Another problem that I see with governments is how do we explain borders? Borders are particularly problematic not only because until the recent past, they have changed significantly and with much frequency, but even more problematically because borders change between two sovereign nations who supposedly have God's stamp of approval. If God has ordained the government of the United States and of Mexico, how was it that we took land from Mexico justly? Which of us was authorized by God to claim said land? Was it the United States was God approved because the United States won, so God must have wanted that? Just war doesn't make any sense, as we saw in season four, but it especially doesn't make sense between two God-ordained entities, and even worse, between two God-ordained entities who supposedly serve him, as most of Europe did through many bellicose centuries that they spent fighting with each other in the name of God. But what about Native Americans then? Did they have governments or are tribes or clans or whatever they had too small to count as governments? What about the, uh, the nations? Uh, there was a group of Native Americans who had, um, who had kind of combined power, a combined government. What do we as Christians who are called to be a borderless people do with borders? When our country blocks off access, both due to arbitrary borders as well as borders we made through the theft of another's land, even the land of those who now seek to keep, we seek to keep out, how do we justify that? How do we as Christians try to keep our brothers and sisters from Mexico or some other country from coming into us? Can we justify keeping them out due to our self-interest and not wanting to pay higher taxes or possibly lose jobs? Who are our people? as Christians, Americans, or fellow Christians of any nationality? Is it possible for Christians to have dual allegiances? Or do we have one allegiance to one kingdom and are actually aliens and ambassadors in any other kingdom? If we're aliens and ambassadors, do aliens and ambassadors usually vote in a strange land or fight in a strange army? Why is it the UN doesn't have more sovereignty and authority than a lone nation if it's a group of nations pooling their power together? Why are so many conservative Christians dismissive of the UN when it seems to be a pooling of more God-ordainedness than any country's lone claim to being God-ordained? And what about methodology? What about our, our system of economy? Capitalists and socialists are both consequentialists in my book. What's good for the individual versus what's good for the group, instead of simply, what's good? Socialism run by, by state through forceful confiscation is a problem. Capitalism ends up being the same thing, but through financial confiscation of those outside of the system. We call that uh, imperialism and exploitation, which if you think that the United States didn't participate in, you don't know history. If you don't think the United States still participates in it, you don't know modernity, uh, reality, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. A huge chunk of the capital that we have in the West came from theft and exploitation, for the U.S., much of that was clearly theft of the Americas, but it also came through exploiting Africa. There's a great book called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, and I'll put that in the show notes, but um, this guy from Africa does such a good job pointing to specific companies and specific instances and history, and um, it, it was very helpful for me to just, just begin to understand some of the ways that we've exploited. But like I said, I mean, we still do it today. 
Whether it's overthrowing leaders in South America so that they can give our companies good prices or so that they don't nationalize their land, which would drive prices up, or whether installing vicious dictators like those in Iran, which makes the people hate us, I don't know why, or supporting a tyrannical nation like Saudi Arabia and condoning, essentially, through our inaction and our continued support and selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, condoning hundreds of thousands of Yemenis being starved out. And through that all, we have gained and still do gain much of our capital by exporting violence while importing goods and controlling prices. Capitalists think that they're superior to socialists, like those in Venezuela, because our country doesn't look like Venezuela does. However, to see what the U.S. really does look like, we would have to look at the countries and nations we've exploited. We look like Native American reservations. We look like Haiti. We look like Liberia. You know, just just thought of it now. It it reminds me of um, of that Disney movie, Tangled. America is like the uh, and and any empire. Again, this isn't like pick on America. It's empire. It's Babylon. It's all of them. Um, whoever has the power at the moment. But it's a lot like that movie Tangled, where this witch, um, she has like control of. I think it's a flower, and um, she basically has to like you know suck power out of this this thing, which. I think I don't remember the story exactly, but like it gets trapped up in in uh, Rapunzel's hair or something. Somehow I don't know how it worked out, but basically this this lady is like hundreds of years old, and she tries to stay alive um, by basically sucking the life and power out of out of this other object. And that's like the United States, right? Um, we and again empire, we suck the life out of other places. What happens is, at the end, of course, when, when the lady doesn't have, uh, the witch doesn't have her access to that youth, that fountain of youth, you see her for what she really is, right? She's really this old, decrepit thing. That's kind of what we do, right? Uh, we don't really see our true face because we have sucked the life out of um, so many other places, and we have this facade of youthful um, abundance and such. Because we do have youth and abundance now, but where did that come from? It got obtained from the sucking of life from other places, the exploitation. Oh, so anyway, that's a lot to think through, lots of questions I just threw at you. You probably want to go back through this and maybe pause it after each question, write down the ones that stick out, um, follow those up, think about them. But there's so many problems, uh, logical problems with government foundational is where it gets its authority and then so much else that just highlights the inconsistency of of um, what government is, what we think it is. Hopefully by thinking about the foundation of authority and then having my starter questions, you can begin working through this. Um, my conclusion is that government is the secular Sunday school answer to a lot of things, right? How are we going to fix problems? Government. How is our life organized and infrastructure built? Government. How can we have a safe world? Government? How can we get justice and vengeance? Leave it up to God? No, government! Government seems like such an obvious answer. Right? It's, it's the answer that we all give all the time. But wasn't it obvious to the rest of Babylon that bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's image was the right answer? Why face furnaces and fury, hardship and discomfort, when you can just bow the knee? 
Why go to the cross when Satan is ready to hand you the kingdoms of the world? Consequentialism isn't the Christian answer, but it's become the answer of many Christians. And really, it's the age-old struggle of defining good and evil for ourselves. But I hope that with today's episode, we have been able to interrogate government and help you see that it's not such an intuitive good. It doesn't have a clear line of authority, it doesn't have answers, and it often drives us to live and act inconsistently and violently. It commits atrocities, it exports violence, it exploits, it creates arbitrary borders and groups, and it vies for our allegiance. But Christians can only have one allegiance. There is no king but Christ. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.